Good morning. He is risen. Oh, it was strong. I think we can go stronger. He is risen. Have you guys ever seen this painting before? This painting is called the Salvador Mundi. It's one of Leonardo's 15 works of art that has survived time. If you don't know who Leonardo da Vinci is, <laughs> he painted the Mona Lisa. That's there in the Louvre in Paris. And he painted the Last Supper, which is in a fresco uh, just right outside of Milan. This is one of his 15 works of art. And this work was only discovered in 2005. I don't know if you read about this, if you've ever seen this, but in 2005, they found this missing Leonardo. Uh, up until 2005, this work was hanging in a living room in a house of a family in Baton Rouge. And it was when the owner of that estate died and that estate went up for auction that that painting was discovered. Uh, when the appraisers came in to appraise the house and everything in the house, they evaluated that this painting uh, was worth $750. And, and I have the document here to prove it to you, okay? So this is the next slide. $750 because it was right there on item M17, poor condition. Now, at that auction, one art aficionado showed up. He was not there for this specific piece of art. He was just trying to buy used art. And he looked at it and he says, man, this really looks like some of the works of uh, Leonardo. And, uh, you know, he thought originally it was from a student of Leonardo or someone that learned the techniques of Leonardo, and he paid $1,250 for this painting. He hung it in his house, and he would walk by the painting and look at the painting, and he would always be intrigued. Man, this really looks like a legit Leonardo. But then he would debate with himself and say, ah, it's too good to be true. It, it, it cannot be true. And you know, that back and forth went on for weeks and weeks until one day another friend of his was at his house who was an art aficionado as well, told him, hey man, you should at least check it out. You know, like, it's probably not true, but if it is, wow. So he contacts the Sotheby in New York and he takes it over there and obviously it's met with a lot of skepticism and suspicion. Leonardo? Hanging in a house in Baton Rouge that you paid $1,250 for? But the more some of the specialists looked into it, they're like, well, maybe we should ask for other people's opinions. And they gathered a community of art specialists from all over the world, and for three years, they put this painting under severe scrutiny. And the verdict came out in 2010. It is a legit Leonardo. In 2017, this painting was auctioned at the famous Christie's in London, and it sold for $450 million dollars. 
to an Arab prince. Since, now, since 2017, this painting has not been seen. It's not out to the public. It hasn't been seen. They suspect that the prince has hung this painting in his half a billion dollar yacht. And since 2017, more and more critics have come out. You can look it up. You know, it's in the Atlantic and the Wall Street Journal. They've come out and said, this is not a legit Leonardo. It cannot be. The jury is still out because people are still saying to this day, it's too good to be true. You know, today is Resurrection Sunday, the day that a third of the globe celebrates the bodily resurrection of the Salvador Mundi. That's what Christians are doing today. Because Christians believe that the resurrection is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 to the early church that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, our faith is in vain. If Jesus did not bodily raise from the dead, what we're doing here today is just maybe hanging out, listening to some good music, but spiritually speaking, we're really wasting our time. Now, some of you are here and you truly believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of you are here exploring. Some of you got dragged here by your spouse or your mom. Mom says, you gotta be at church on Easter Sunday and you have to go, all right? Otherwise, you'll hear it the rest of the year. So you better be at church. But the jury is still out for many people. Maybe the jury is still out for you and you're saying to yourself, yeah, that's a beautiful, inspiring story but it's too good to be true. That's one of Jesus' disciples and his thought post the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's this disciple that when the other 10 come to him and say to him, hey, listen, we were having dinner. We were sitting at the table in this room and Jesus showed up and he ate with us and he spent time with us. He has risen He says, yeah, right, too good to be true. Unless I touch the scars in his hands and in his side, I will not, I will not, I refuse to believe. And this is where we find ourselves today. This is the story that we're talking about. It's found in John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Will you read it with me? This is the gospel of John. Now, Thomas, this is the name of the disciple, that said to himself, this is too good to be true. Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. This time he was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put put your finger here and see my hands and and put your hand and place it in my side 
do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If that's you here today, that you love this story as an inspiring story, but you don't truly really believe that someone 2,000 years ago, after being buried for three days, walked out of a grave. I want to tell you that this passage that we have in front of us here is a passage that can bring you comfort, encouragement, and hope if you, with me, look at three things that we see here in this story. The first thing that we see here is the fact that Jesus welcomes our doubts. Now, Thomas doubted. And if Thomas doubted, I'm going to say to you right off the bat, it's okay for you to doubt as well. Because I think about Thomas, you know, he had spent, like the other disciples, three full years of his life with Jesus. And when you read the gospel accounts and in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read all that happened during those three years and all the things that they heard and saw, it was extraordinary. It was amazing. I mean, these guys saw Jesus having conversations with demonic powers. He saw Jesus casting out demons from people. They saw Jesus healing the sick, the lame, the leper, the blind, the deaf. They saw it all the time. They saw Jesus speak to storms and calm storms. They saw saw Jesus walking on water. And moreover, they heard Jesus say over and over again that this would happen, that he would die and that he would would rise on the third day. They saw, they heard. Thomas saw, Thomas heard. And yet when he heard the testimony of his friends, he says, I cannot believe this. This must be too good to be true. It's not that he did not want it to be true. It's just that he questioned and he doubted, which means this, that uh, doubt has nothing to do with visual evidence. If he saw and he still struggled with believing, you know, that ought to bring some comfort to those of us here today that struggle with believing as well. I don't know what your reasons are for not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but I want to tell you this, that all the reasons that you may have for not believing were reasons that people like Thomas had back then for not believing as well. You know, we sometimes hear people say, hey, listen, um, people back then were way more superstitious Nowadays, it's much harder for someone to believe in something like this than it was back then. They believed in myths and, and legends and, and that sort of thing. And I want to just tell you something. Listen, the IQs have not gone up that much through time, okay? People were smart back then as they are today. So don't have any what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. <laughs> if he struggled with believing so do we. And listen, at the end of the day, it is okay. Look at Jesus's response. Uh, What we read here in the passage is that Jesus 
who was with the other 10 when he appeared the first time, uh, was not with Thomas because Thomas was not in the room and Thomas was not with uh, his brothers in the room when they had that conversation, that experience with Jesus. Uh, You would think that Jesus uh, didn't hear what Thomas said to his friends as he questioned their testimony, Uh, but Jesus did hear, and Jesus always hears, and he knows our hearts, he knows our thoughts, and he sees everything because he is God. And the evidence is here in the text because when he shows up the second time, and this time Thomas is present, he begins to immediately address Thomas. He comes in and Thomas is his target. And there's two things that happen here that shows us Jesus' grace and mercy towards someone like Thomas, towards someone like ourselves, towards all of the disciples, because even before this experience, all of them struggle in believing. When they heard the testimony of the women that went into the tomb to care for the body of Jesus and there was nobody there, they doubted the women as well. And Jesus walks into this room. He walks through the walls, amazing, with his new resurrected body. I don't know how that's possible, but that's the type of body that one day we will all receive. Jesus walks through the walls, and the first words of Jesus, as we read in the text, are what? Peace be with you. What Jesus is not doing is walking in the room and saying, I can't believe you guys still doubt. Thomas, come on, man, three years with me. You saw all these things. I mean, I taught you many times You're horrible. You're not a good friend. I mean, I can't entrust the church to you from this moment on. What are you doing? He does not reprimand him. He does not scold him. Jesus says, peace be with you. In other words, it's okay. It's normal. It's natural. I'm glad that you are asking these questions. Don't let this trouble you. Because uh, Jesus knows that faith is more than a destination, faith is a journey. And what we read in the Bible is that the people that have made the strongest professions of faith, the strongest, the deepest profession of faith, are precisely the ones that have questioned. You see, doubt is the other side of the coin of faith. You can't arrive at a robust faith without questioning. You can't come to a strong Christian faith unless you look under the hood of your faith. I mean, when you go buy a car, would it be smart to buy a car without lifting the hood and looking what's inside? What's inside? Would it be smart to take a job and not read the job description and ask questions about that job description? Would it be smart to marry someone that you've never asked questions about their life, their past, their longings, their desires, their hopes, their future? No. In order for you to arrive at a good place in any area of life, you must be willing to ask the tough questions. And what we have nowadays is a lot of Christians that are just Christians because they say that their parents are Christians or they were Christian when they were kids at church and that's all they know as Christians. And they're the ones that only show up once a year to church precisely in a day such as today. Sorry for the jab. Listen, if you don't have a faith that is tested, if you don't have a faith that has not been examined, when the storms of life come, when the difficulties and the struggles come, it will not hold water. 
how many people do I know that have said that they're Christians and then the first difficulty comes in life and they're out? The first, the first critique or the first shaming comes to them and they're like, oh yeah, I'm not sure about that. You must be willing to look under the hood and ask the tough questions. You cannot stand in, on someone else's testimony. You have to have your own testimony. It's got to be your own experience with Christ. And in order for it to get to that place where it's a solid faith, you must be willing to ask questions. And that's why Jesus is okay with those who doubt. So if you're here today and you're doubting, I want to say to you once again, Jesus is okay with that. He welcomes your doubts. But I have a few suggestions for you, uh, nevertheless. Four things I want to suggest to you. First, if that's you, will you start? And as you ask questions, will you do it with an open mind? You know, a lot of people accuse Christians of being closed-minded while they are closed-minded themselves about Christianity. So would you put yourself in a place where you can have an open mind and look into the claims of Christianity. You're asking, where, where do I do that? How do I do that? Read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them over and over and over and over again. Listen to the testimony of the eyewitnesses and ask, could this be true? Could this be too good to be true? Begin to ask the questions. Then secondly, here's another suggestion. Start with the resurrection. Start here. Don't start anywhere else. A lot of people have issues with Christianity because they disagree with certain Christians' position in relation to science, or they disagree with certain ethics of Christianity that's preached out into culture. Uh, some people have a problem with the testimony of Christians. Some people have been spiritually abused. Some of you may have been spiritually abused in a community of faith. And you say, because of these things, I cannot attest that Christianity is true. Don't start there. Start with the resurrection of Jesus because of what we said in the beginning. Paul says, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything changes. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he did not rise from the dead, then who cares? Nothing matters. Either everything matters at all or nothing matters at all. So start here. Uh, thirdly, be willing to look underneath the hood of your doubts. Don't just look under the hood of the Christian faith. Look under the hood of your own doubts. Ask, where's this doubt coming from? Where are these questions coming from? Is it coming from a place of harm? Was I harmed and that's why I'm asking these questions? Is it coming from a place of shame? Was I shamed in the past because I called myself a Christian? Do I not want to be associated with other people that I completely am disgusted about, is there, is there a source of shame? Is there a source of anger? Are you having an objective view of the Christian faith or not? Where are your doubts coming from? I think it's important that you question that as well. And then lastly, don't get comfortable. In other words, don't get lazy. A lot of people settle with unbelief. Now listen to the words of Jesus to Thomas. He says, do not disbelieve believe. See, there's a difference between unbelief and doubt. You know, Thomas may be a doubter, but he's not an unbeliever. Just because you doubt and you ask questions does not mean that you're an unbeliever. 
Don't settle for unbelief. Don't say, I don't even want to do all this work. I'm just comfortable where I am. Don't do that. Keep walking like Johnny Walker, you know? It's a journey. And and if that's you here today, if if you walked in here today and and that's where you find yourself and you're like, okay, good suggestions. I want to tell you that this is a safe community for you to do that. We like to say here at Crossbridge that you can belong before you believe. And if you choose to explore Christianity with us, we promise that we will come alongside you as you ask these questions. This is a safe place. You're not going to be ostracized for questioning or for doubting because we do believe that Jesus welcomes our doubts. But secondly, not only does Jesus welcome our doubts, but Jesus offers evidence for our doubts. That's the second thing that we see here in this passage. He offers evidence both to our heads and evidence to our hearts as well. You know, first he offers evidence to our heads, rational proofs of the fact that he has risen from the dead. After all, he shows up once again in a bodily way, a second time to his disciples. He is allowing his disciples to scrutinize him in his body. He's allowing his disciples to hear from him and even to touch him because Jesus wants to give evidence for the resurrection. And if you didn't know this, after Jesus rose from the dead, okay, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was with his friends for about 40 days where he ate with them multiple times, where he had conversations with them multiple times, where they touched him and saw him. John in his epistle talks about that, that we've seen, we've touched the risen Christ. He did that for 40 days. And by the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostle Paul writes about 20 years later to the church in Corinth that there were over 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection. People that saw Jesus, people that touched Jesus, people that ate with Jesus. Now, this is what lawyers will say. This is direct evidence, okay? You cannot discount the testimony of people, of multiple people, that are eyewitnesses to an event. And this is what's happening here. Now, 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 I want you to understand the importance of this. Okay, so this year we're celebrating... Uh, or or we're we're remembering, the right word is remembering, we're remembering 23 years of 9-11. Now now imagine, so 9-11 happens about 23 years ago uh, when the gospel accounts are written, right? This is about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ that these documents are written of of the testimony of these eyewitnesses. Now now, now imagine this, that uh, people came to you and we didn't have access to footage or... Uh, to photography that was taken at the site in lower Manhattan when the two towers came down. And people came to you and said, hey, listen, uh, 23 years ago, two planes drove into the Twin Towers and the towers went down. That's why they're no longer there. Uh, Let's say we didn't have visual evidence. Let's say we didn't have that technology. If... A 1,000 people, 2,000, 3,000 came forth and said, yeah, but we were there. We saw it. This actually happened. You could not discount their testimony. And this is what we have here with the resurrection. Over 500 people saw and touched the resurrected Christ. You can't say that that is not good evidence. This is good evidence. Anywhere in any court, 
for the mind. There are more, but we will only give it to you if you continue to explore the faith with us. But there's evidence here for the heart as well. You know, Jesus uh, comes close to Thomas and the other disciples, and he extends his hands, and he maybe lifts up his robe, and he says, touch. You know, I I believe that uh, when Thomas said to his friends, I need to see, I need to touch, he was asking for rational evidence that Jesus was alive. But Jesus, when he walks into that room, he doesn't just want to give to Thomas and therefore to us evidence that he is alive, but that he is loving. He wants to give evidence of his love for Thomas and for the disciples. And that's why he says, you can touch. And he, he, he extends his hands. And, and I believe that that's the moment that uh, the breakthrough happens in Thomas's heart. Because Thomas begins to realize that Jesus was faithful to his word. That he did exactly what he said he would. That he did not abandon them even though they had abandoned him. The scars were there to prove that he had not forsaken them. That he went and loved them as we read earlier in the Gospel of John to the end. He loved them to the death on the cross and with love... You cannot contest the facts and the truth of that. Has anyone ever taken a bullet for you? Has anyone ever taken a hit for you? If someone has stood in the line of fire for you at any point in life, whether someone at work has taken the blame for you or someone has physically stood in in, in the way of, of harm, physical harm to protect you, you know that they love you. And that's what Thomas begins to realize that he has something here for his head to work, but he has more for his heart. Jesus is indeed loving. Jesus is there giving full evidence that he is fully forgiven, that you and I have been fully forgiven. I mean, Friday night, we were all there at our Key Biscayne campus um, celebrating a good Friday service. It was a beautiful service for those who missed. Uh, It was probably my favorite Good Friday service yet uh, here at Crossbridge. And we were talking about what happened on the cross, that Jesus on the cross uh, took our place and he bore the penalty for our sins and that's why we are forgiven. Now, if Jesus had not raised from the dead, how would you know that what happened on the cross actually really worked? You would not know. See, the scars in Jesus' hands post-resurrection is the receipt and the evidence that we, in fact, have been forgiven. How do you know that someone who was sentenced for a crime has fulfilled the demands of the law the day that they walk out of prison after doing their time? You know that it is settled when that happens. When Jesus walked out of that grave 2,000 years ago and he extends his hands to his disciples and that are marked by scars. And he lift up his robe and there's a scar there on the side. That's the full evidence that they have been truly forgiven. I mean, the, the other day I, I went to Costco and, you know, I, I was doing the groceries there for the month and I was leaving. Uh, and uh, this gentleman says, sir, you cannot leave. 
you have to show us your receipt. And I'm like, man, this thing. I mean, I decided after I paid the bill to um, grab some refreshments there at their little bar and I ended up losing the receipt. And so I have to go back to the customer service and they have to pull out, um, you know, my purchase and then they printed a new receipt and I'm annoyed by that time. And so I, 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 I stroll my cart back to the door and I says, bother me no more, sir. <laughs> Jesus' scars hands. Jesus' resurrection is the receipt that you have against the accusations of the devil. I have been forgiven. Jesus' scarred hands is the receipt that you have against death. Because he died for me, I will live with him in all of eternity. Jesus' scarred hands is the receipt that you have against your accusers. Because you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' scarred hands is the receipt that you have against all that happens in life that is designed to remove all hope from you because you know that there is a better future. You know where creation is heading. And so that leads us to the last thing. Jesus not only gives evidence to us as a proof of his resurrection, but Jesus also offers us hope. You know, in his scarred hands, Jesus is showing to his disciples and he is showing to us what he is doing to the world. The true Salvador Mundi. He is redeeming all of broken creation. See, scars, they evoke memory, but also it's a clear evidence that healing has taken place. It will be like one day as you experience, I'm sure, at some point in your life, having a horrible dream and waking up and seeing that everything is actually fine and okay. You know, I, sometimes I have these nightmares where I lose all my family and, and then I wake up and they're still around. I was like, oh, I'm so glad this was just a dream. You know, the Bible ends with Jesus looking at his finished work and saying, I have made all things new. And this is important because there's a lot of people, and maybe some of you are here today and you're saying, I can't believe in God because look at all the pain and the suffering in this world. Why is he doing anything about it? Have you heard that before from friends? Is that, is that where you're at? And what I say to them is just like, hang on, hang on, man. Just wait long enough and you'll see. It started here in the resurrection and it will be completed one day. That's the hope that we have. And that's why the apostle Paul writes to a small church in the town of Thessalonica. And he says, we Christians do not mourn as those who do not have hope. We don't grieve like those who do not have hope because we know what's coming. We know the future. There's no reason for anxiety. Like, I mean, if you went into a game and your team is playing and you knew that they would win, you wouldn't be like, you know, chewing your nails and over-investing in the expressions of your emotions. I mean, you wouldn't be doing that because you know how it would end. And we know the ending and that makes all the difference in the present. Because what we know is this, is that the resurrection is not a consolation prize for the things that we lost in this life, but it's the restoration of everything that we lost in this life. And I think that maybe 
God could have sent an angel into that room and said to the disciples, don't worry about it, guys. You know, he really, really loved you. And he's okay. He's in a better place right now. You guys are going to be fine. Don't worry about it. But instead, Jesus shows up himself and gives them full evidence. Why? Because Jesus wants them to see where all of creation is heading. See, the resurrection gives us hope because it tells us that everything that we lost in this life, we will have it back never to lose it again. There's some of you here that have lost your sense of dignity. Somebody has taken that away from you. On that day, you will have it back, never to lose it again. There's some of you that are trying to uh, restore a relationship, and maybe in this life it will never be restored, but in, on that day it will be restored, never to lose it again. Some of you have lost loved ones, and one day you will see them in eternity, never to lose them again. All of those things are possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, this begs the last question, how can you cope with life without this sort of hope, without this kind of belief? And maybe some of you are still in that place where you're saying, can this be too good to be true? I want to tell you, it is true. It is true. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, yeah, I'm not ready to make that step yet or to, to, to take that plunge, but, but I, but I want to continue to explore. But maybe there's some of you here today that are saying, now, this is enough evidence for me. I know that he loves me. I know that he offers me hope. I never thought about the resurrection in these terms, but I see it now. And if that's you here today, I, I want to tell you, number one, that the resurrected Christ is present here with us. Because wherever two or three gather in his name, there he is. He is here with us. And he may be right now near to you, like he was near to Thomas and the disciples in that room, and he is revealing himself to you. And if that is the case with you right now, would you put your life's trust into his scarred hands today? Would you do that? Would you come to him and say, my, my, my life is broken. My heart is feeble. I don't want to settle for unbelief. I want to start today. I want to put my life into your scarred hands. And if you are ready for that, if that's where you arrive at today, if you don't, that's okay. But if that's where you arrive today, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And I, I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads at this very moment. And if, if that's you, uh, repeat after me. As I pray this prayer, repeat after me. Maybe this is the first prayer towards belief that you ever prayed in your life. And, and, and if you are at that point and if you're willing to pray this prayer for the very first time, I want to tell you this is the most important prayer that you could ever pray this is the best prayer that you could ever pray. Pray with me. Jesus, today I believe. I believe that you died and that you were raised. Pray that. To show me love, to offer me hope, Today, I put my life in your scarred hands. Pray that. Make me new. I pray this in your name. 
Amen. Amen. Is there anyone here that prayed that prayer for the first time today? Amen. That's great, kids. Amen. If you pray that prayer for the very first time today, uh, what follows belief in Jesus is baptism. And we're going to let you know a little bit more about that. But this month we have an all-church baptism. And uh, if you haven't been baptized yet, and you've prayed this prayer before, but you haven't been baptized yet, there's an opportunity coming up. We would love to do that because when you baptize, you make that public confession that you have prayed this prayer and you, in fact, has entrust, have entrusted your life to Jesus. Will you stand now and will you worship uh, with all of us the resurrected Christ, the Christ that is here present today, the Christ that has given us new life and new hope, that has given full evidence that he is alive, but that he is also loving. Let's worship him.